what is actually happening in heaven right now? What is happening in heaven? The place where you are seated before Christ. Jesus says, I know you've heard of the throne. I know you have a concept from what you've been taught. I know that you might have heard pastors and prophets talk about it, but I want you to see the throne of heaven, and ultimately I want you to experience it. How many of you are ready to see the throne of God and to experience His authority and rulership in your own life? And so Jesus extends an invitation to John in Revelation 4 that has been echoed and extended to every one of us. This is the invitation to you this morning. It's an invitation for us to draw our sense of faith and our sense of hope and our sense of security in this life from this place, from the throne of heaven rather than from the throne of man. This is the invitation that gives us our perspective. In Revelation 4 verse 1, Jesus speaks to John and he says this, John writes, After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. We just finished in Revelation 3 where Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you open for me, I'll come in and I'll have fellowship with you. I'll eat with you, me and my father. There'll be community between, between God and us. But God goes, but understand that as I knock on your door and you're still deciding whether or not to open the door of your heart to me, I want you to see I've already opened the door of heaven to you. I've already made a way for you. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. That's the invitation. Come up here. Don't just live down here. See what is happening up here. Understand that your life is seated and centered in what's happening in heaven and not happening on earth. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Incredible uh, invitation given to John for us to move beyond our earthly sight and knowledge. Man, we struggle with this. We're so wrapped up in what happens on earth, what happens in our daily lives. Our joy depends on it. Our peace depends on it. Our, our sense of significance depends on it. So many times we, we put our worth on it. We, we completely trust in this earthly life. And, and the invitation to us as the church through Revelation 4 is, come up here. Come up here. Come and see what's really happening in heaven. Verse 2 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. How many of you are glad to know that there is a throne in heaven? That there is a point of authority that is greater than all the authority that we have on earth? But I love how it says that at once John was in the Spirit with a capital S, the Holy Spirit. At once I was in the Spirit. This gives us an understanding to the difference between how we actually live from a heavenly position as opposed to an earthly position. We have to be in the Spirit. We have to live spiritually. We have to be led by the Spirit. We have to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We have to commune with God. It says, at once in the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, if you had to take this message of the throne room of God to people that don't know Jesus, that haven't been awakened spiritually, 
it would sound like absolute foolishness to them. Because it takes a spiritual awakening for you to recognize the truth of what reality actually is. The spiritual reality. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and, and he says to them, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Like you've, got, you've got physical eyes to see, but Paul says you've got heart eyes, spiritual eyes that see into a dimension that is greater than this earthly dimension. And so he says, I want you to see with the eyes of your heart that they may be enlightened, filled with light. So how do we go to the throne of God? How do we go into the presence of God? How do we depend on God's presence in His throne room? How do we live from that place? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Through our communion and fellowship and walk with the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit who abides in us. Where does the Holy Spirit reside? Inside of you. In the Old Testament, there was a physical temple, a tabernacle first in the wilderness, and then the, the temple that was built in Jerusalem. And that temple was said to house the presence of God, and in the most holy place, that's where the presence of God was. But nobody could enter in except for the high priest on one specific day, on the Day of Atonement, in order to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. And only then he could go in following very strict instructions. There was no access to the presence of God. Until Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. And that temple and every artifact in it we see in Revelation is actually a copy of heaven. It's a copy of what stands in heaven today and has always stood in heaven. It was an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. But in the New Testament... What is the temple? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of God, is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that the reality of heaven does not only exist in heaven. It's a spiritual reality. It exists in you. It exists in you. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit, the temple is here. And so you don't need to wait until you die one day to experience the reality of heaven. We are in the reality of heaven because the Holy Spirit resides within us. And so we live with the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God is where? It's within you. So this entire reality that we are about to see in Revelation 4, including God's authority and rulership, a movement towards worship, an overwhelming sense of God's power and presence, a surrender to His goodness, it all lives in you. People tell me often as a pastor, they say, I feel like, I feel like God isn't hearing my prayers. How many of you have ever felt that way before? Like, people have told me this, like, I pray, but it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Anybody ever felt that way? Guess what? Your prayers don't have to go beyond the ceiling. They're not trying to get out of your house and float through the sky because the Holy Spirit lives here. Heaven is right here. How many times when we pray, we ask God, for example, for healing like we did this morning, do we ask God to come out of heaven up there 
and come down here and touch us. Just If you just visit us for a brief moment and then he can go back. How many of you, when you pray for God to heal you, pray to the God who lives inside of you? Right here, Holy Spirit, you're within me. Can you heal this part of me? There's a perspective change here. Heaven isn't a destination far away. The reality of heaven lives in us through the Holy Spirit. How many does it say sat on the throne? It says there was one seated on the throne. I saw a throne in heaven, and there was only one seated on it. How many thrones are there in this heart of ours? We contest for the throne. But when you've surrendered your life to Jesus, there's only one that sits on the throne of our heart. There's only one that gets to lead our lives. There's only one that fashions our future. There's only one God. There can only be one God. Many times people have this philosophy that, there's, that there's, there's God and there's goodness, and then there's like an equal power of evil, so that good and evil are equal powers battling each other out. That's a common theory in our day and age. It's not the truth. Because God is infinite. He has to be infinite because He created space and time. And so if God is infinite, can you have two infinities? I know that, you know, when you tell your kids you love them, you say infinity times two, but that's not possible. You can't have two infinites. Even if we said God had 99% of the power and some other God only had 1% of the power, that would mean that the God who has 99% of the power isn't truly God because he doesn't have all power. God is an infinite God, which means there can only be one of him. There's only one infinity. There's only one infinite. And so there's only one God who sits on the throne. This really flies in the face of our modern world that says there's this God and then that God. Oh, and then this God, he, he also became a God at one point. And then this other one's also claiming and that philosophy and all these different. And they're all like little mini gods fighting for, you know, some petty battle. For There's one God who sits on the throne in heaven. He's the creator of all things. All things were made by him. All things were made for him. All things are held together in him. There's only one God who sits on the throne and He is the ruler of our lives and He is the ruler of our hearts. The throne of God is within us. His rulership, His authority, the kingdom of God. So Revelation 4, and I'm going to read from verse 3 to 8, it then begins to express, John begins to write what he sees and I can imagine John being completely overwhelmed. Have you ever tried, have you ever had an amazing experience? Maybe you've gone to an amazing part of the world or a great holiday or you experienced a natural beauty or, or climbed a mountain. You know, imagine climbing Mount Everest and then coming home and trying to explain to people what you felt. If that's true for natural things that we encounter, can you imagine what, what John was feeling trying to express what he felt and what he saw in heaven which is something that we really have, you know, any earthly comparison would pale in comparison to that. And so he begins to describe this. And in Revelation 4 verse 3 it says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and cornelian, precious stones. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. 
And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, and on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Just a quick come up here, unveiling of what takes place in heaven. An incredible scene that John is trying to describe the majesty of in human words to people who have never seen it before. And as he describes God sitting on the throne, the best way that he can express the brilliance of seeing God the Father himself on the throne is to describe it like flashes of lightning power, this bright shining, and then precious stones like jasper and carnelian. Jasper is a red precious gem. And carnelian's normally either red or a green in color. There's this, there's this brilliance coming off of the throne and there's a rainbow over the throne that looks like emerald and a sea of glass in front of it like, like crystal. And then from the throne come flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, rumblings of the authority and the power of God present in, in that space. I can't tell you how grateful I am that when I face the battles of life, and when I am facing the battles of self, when I'm going through my own doubts and my own fears and struggling with my own things, how many of you know that it is encouraging to know that the throne of heaven, that power, that grace, that ability of God resides right here within me. I can't be lost. There's the throne of God's power in me. He is present within me. Just this incredible scene of the seat of all creation and power. We see Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 1, he also had a moment of a vision where he saw heaven, and he describes it similarly he says, he, it, it's quite long, but in verse 26 it says, And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. So he describes it like sapphire, the throne itself. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance, which is God. And upward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. You see that, that enclosed fire, the jasper, the cornelian, it's all the kind of the same kind of uh, uh, appearance. And downward from what was the appearance of his waist, I saw it were as the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. That's like a really prophetic, poetic way of saying rainbow. Like, you know, the bow in the clouds after the rain. Anyways, um, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Come up here. Hey, I know, you know, you drove William Nickel this morning, but come up here. Come up here and see the throne of heaven, the throne of God. As we see what John saw in the throne room, we see that what happens in heaven really centers around worship. There's the correct alignment of things in heaven. 
It's an alignment that we have got wrong here on earth, that we struggle to get right. It's the correct order of things. It's what brings peace. It's what brings joy. It's what, what brings power to our lives is the correct alignment as it is in heaven. And what is the correct alignment? God is the center. Jesus is the center. The throne is in the center. Here's the struggle that we have on earth. In heaven, you have creation living in reverence of the relationship with their creator. But the problem that we have on earth is that we want to be the center of our own lives. We want to be the center of our own salvation. We want to be the center of our own future. Everything in our lives is centered around us, but in heaven, God is the center. We make our decision as if we were the ones on the throne, but He is, and in heaven, we see this. And so I believe this is what happens as we are sanctified as believers, as we grow in our faith. What happens is that as heaven takes up residence in us, it orientates our lives towards Christ as the center. That's the process. There's an order in heaven that our lives are out of order. We're in disorder. But as we make God the center of our lives and continue to live by the faith of what happens in heaven, we are reorientated. And our lives fall in place. There's things that... that, that we no longer struggle with. There's things that we get breakthrough in because we are orientated like in heaven with the throne and then around the throne, the church, the people, the, the 24 elders, which essentially represent the church. In the previous chapters, we saw Jesus make a promise to the church. He says to them, to those who are faithful, to those who conquer, you will have white robes, a crown of life, and a place in Revelation 3.21 at my throne. What do we see here? The 24 elders sitting around the throne are wearing white robes. They have crowns on their heads and they're seated in heaven. What Jesus promised, he is faithful to deliver. And so that's the reality of us in heaven. Beyond that, we have the four living creatures around the throne, which are essentially angels or cherub class angels, the highest kind of class that we find in the Bible of angels. And they are obviously servants and they're executing God's will in heaven. But the reason why they take on the form of the lion and the ox and the, and the man and the eagle, many people agree that it's because it represents the four gospels or the four witnesses of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't know this, the book of Matthew describes Jesus as king. That's why it starts with a genealogy because it's showing you if you're a king, it matters where you came from. And then it goes on to speak about Jesus as the king, because that is an aspect of who Jesus is. Then Mark talks about uh, Jesus as a servant, as an ox, the one who came to serve. Luke talks about Jesus as a man. His earthly, you, in, through Luke, you see the, the earthly human side of Jesus more than in any other book. And in John, you see that Jesus as the eagle, the Messiah, the divine Messiah. And so these are the four representatives of Jesus and they have eyes in the front and within and behind and, and covered in all of these eyes because it represents the full witness or the full view or the full perspective of Jesus and also the omniscience of God. That's what these things represent. We see that, that uh, Ezekiel also saw the four creatures and, and so this is something we definitely find in heaven. But we see Jesus as the king, the servant, the man and the messiah. 
And what do they do? What does the witness of Jesus do? What did Jesus say? He said, I did not come to seek glory for myself, but to bring glory to my Father. And so those witnesses and those angels in heaven, they constantly worship and give glory to God. So already here in heaven, we see the Trinity. We have God the Father. We have Jesus represented, and we're also going to see in the next chapter, Jesus is the Lamb. And then we've got seven lamps representing the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the order. And beyond that is the 24 elders. It shows us how the will of God works. It's all represented in heaven. God, Son, Spirit, and Church. And the purpose and intention of all of that is to give glory to God. And they begin to worship. The question is, this morning, as, as heaven centers around worship, what leads us towards worship? What causes you to truly worship? Now, you know what makes me worship? Can we just be honest for a moment here this morning and, and, and agree that, that many of us struggle in worship sometimes? Like you're worshiping, but your, your brain is literally running to every other kind of thought and things that you're going to do afterwards, like from everything to how little you slept last night to what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow to what's happening in work. And we struggle to connect. And, and then sometimes we, we get kick-started by a little bit of guilt. Like, oh gosh, we're into song four and I haven't even thought of Jesus once today, you know? Am I the only one that's experienced this? But there come certain moments that we really feel like, wow, the reality of God just becomes so apparent. In my life, the thing that has allowed me to worship in a greater way, and sometimes we, we, we battle the flesh, and we just have to push through those, that, that distraction and, and focus ourselves. But, but more than anything, the thing that has moved me to a truer sense of worship in my life is recognizing the goodness of God, the grace of God. I tell you, I worshiped before, but I worshiped out of a sense that I was trying to please God because I was so displeasing to Him. But when I moved from that to understanding that I am the righteousness of God, that He died for me, that He has been so good to me, and I actually recognized how lost I was without Him. Many of us don't worship because we don't believe we were that lost. That's why Martin Luther says, God can't save imaginary sinners. It's when you recognize that you would have been utterly lost, dead on the floor, without the presence of God, yet He loved you, and He saved you, and He died for you. Are you still gr grateful for your salvation? For what God has done for you? Then what happens? Worship becomes a natural outpouring, a response to what God has done. When I see the goodness of God, when I think about His love and grace, every time I think about it, I can't help but want to worship God. In Ezekiel, we see these four creatures around the throne they're actually moving around the throne. And every time they look at the throne, they begin to cry out in worship again. It's almost like looking at a diamond that has so many different perspectives that you could look at it from different angles and see different facets of its beauty all around. As these four creatures move around the throne of God, every time they look at Him, every time you look into the face of Jesus, every time we look into the grace of God, they begin to just cry out spontaneously in worship towards God. Through Jesus, we have seen the glory of God. It's like dropping a pebble 
into a pond. You drop that pebble, this is what happens in, in heaven. As the witness of Jesus glorifies the goodness of God, worship just ripples out from one level to the next throughout heaven. A wave of worship that flows. Revelation 4 verse 9 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. They take these crowns off and they throw them before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is one of my favorite parts in all of Scripture, is how these elders, the church, you and I sitting around the throne, when, the, when this wave of worship hits us in heaven, the same way that it hits us in our own hearts, the 24 elders fall down and cast their crowns before the, the throne. You know, falling down is really a symbol and an illustration of surrender. It's an illustration of surrender because when, when you fall down on the ground, your ability to resist, your ability to fight is removed. You know, what's the first thing that, that if, if somebody was robbing a bank and it ran into, what's the first thing when they point their guns out at the people, what do they say? Get down on the ground. Somebody breaks into your house, get down on the ground. Why get down on the ground? It removes your ability to resist. How many of you know that we all love to resist? We love to rebel. That's just our human condition. We resist the will of God. We resist His rulership in our lives until you see the glory of God on the throne, until you have tasted His grace, until you felt His power and His love. Then what do we do? We're like the 24 elders. We throw ourselves before the throne. This is a violent throwing. Like, I surrender. I surrender. I lay it all down. Our ability to assert ourselves is taken away. We don't like to be surrendered until the love of God wins us over, until God's love hits our lives. What it does is it overcomes every idol that we carry in our hearts. You know, we, we worship other things. We worship money. We worship success. We worship fame. We worship significance. We worship certain relationships. We worship things because from them, we feel we can get what we need in life. Those are idols. Because the only thing that fulfills us and sustains us is Jesus and His grace. So when we have all these idols in our hearts, and you know what's the biggest idol? is the idol of self. I'm going to save myself. I'll do it myself. I'll fix myself. I'll make it happen myself. But when we recognize, when we see, when we come up here and we see God's power at the throne, it overcomes our idols. In 1 Samuel 5, verse 1 to 4, one of my favorite stories in the Bible it says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, which was said to, as they were traveling through the wilderness, was the place, the mercy seat, it was the throne of God. It represented God's throne on earth. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, the throne of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, which was their main God in that region and in the area of Assyria. And they set it up. They took the ark, the throne of God, and they put it in the same room as one of their idols, their main idol, Dagon. 
And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back up in his place. How many of us do that? Jesus saves us. Our idols get pulled down. The next day we're like, you know what, I'll just put this idol up a little bit more. Like, I think I still need this in my life. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is a powerful image of what happens when the throne of God becomes a reality in your life, when it takes up residence in your soul through the Holy Spirit. Your idols are smashed to bits. They cannot stand. And in our sinfulness and in our rebellion, we'll try to put them back up. But if God is present in your life, He will sanctify you, He will renew you, and He will overcome every other idol and every other thing that you look for for security. He'll smash those things. So the 24 elders, they fall on the ground before the throne. Ezekiel says, when I saw it, I fell on my face. We saw earlier, John says, I fell down as dead. This is what happens when we see Jesus. When the kingdom of God takes up residence in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we surrender. Our idols are overcome and we become true worshippers. True worshippers. True worshippers. Jesus says in John 4.23, and I'm landing here this morning, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. See, so worship is firstly a response. It's not singing empty words as a form of religious practice. It's the response of a thirsty soul come to find water. That's what worship looks like. A recognition of the greatness and of God's grace and mercy, standing in awe of His love, and this causes our spirit to cry out in truth. So worship is a response. Worship is surrender. It's surrender. It's looking to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. It's recognizing our own inability to save ourselves and submitting ourselves to the salvation that is from heaven. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. This is not self-help. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track, and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of a hole. The, this process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Worship is surrender. I'm not God. God, I fall down before you. You are God. Worship is surrender. And this is the reason why so many don't experience the power of God in their life. It's because they're trying to live in the power of self. But worship is the antidote to that deception. If you ever think that you're the center of your life and that you're your own savior, begin to worship and you'll feel the shift happen. Finally, worship is throwing our crowns. Worship is throwing our crowns. Anything that we think we've done 
to deserve honor. Anything that we can boast in in the flesh. Anything that, 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 that we stand on in our own strength. We realize that the only reason why we have been able to achieve anything in life that is meaningful, that is eternal, is because we have a place in heaven. The only reason why we have a crown to throw is because of the grace of God. You have a crown that you got for being faithful, but you're only faithful because He's faithful. And through His faithfulness, we've been a, we are able to be faithful. It's only because of the grace of God that we have a crown to throw. That's what worship is. It's centering Jesus in your life. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so forever we orientate our lives and our perspective and our faith towards the throne of heaven. And it happens inside of us here. It happens inside of us here. True worship in spirit and in truth as the throne of heaven takes up residence in our hearts. Amen? Ah, oh, I feel like John. So inadequate. Anything I can say this morning is so inadequate. It really is frustrating. I want to I wanna encourage you this morning, take your Bible. Go and read it. Go and understand it. Make the throne of heaven the centerpiece of your focus the throne of Jesus, the center. What he has done for us is what we base our lives on. And I'm just praying that God will reveal in greater measure the fullness of what he has for us, the fullness of the perspective of heaven that lives within us. Be encouraged. God is with you.